Hello, and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. This episode is brought to you by Bullhorn, a leading provider of software to healthcare staffing firms, including Travel, Locum Tenens, and Allied. Bullhorn offers the tools you need to beat the competition, including credentialing, workflow automation, business intelligence, shift scheduling, and more. To see how Bullhorn can transform your business, visit us at the Healthcare Staffing Summit, November 2nd through the 4th at booth number 501, and join our session, Meeting the Moment, Top Healthcare Staffing Talent Expectations for 2023, and How to Exceed Them. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Staffing Show. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Carrie Daniel, who is the CEO and co-founder of NextStaff. Carrie, super excited to have you on today. Excited to hear about your background. To kick things off, if you could tell our audience a little bit about who you are and how you got into staffing. Sure. Again, Carrie Daniel, co-founder, CEO of NextStaff. My entry into the staffing world is very similar to a lot of folks that I hear. It was purely by accident and almost Sometimes I say by force. <laughs> I had a good friend of mine, actually my co-founder, James Wynn Miller. He was working for a national company. This is back in the mid-90s. And uh, he called me up, knew I was looking for a, a sales job and said, hey, this company's hiring. You got to check them out. And so uh, at the time, this is back in the labor-ready days when it was labor-ready. So I uh, put my suit and tie on and I walked into my interview into a labor hall filled with day laborers and thought, I obviously am in the wrong place. And uh, the gentleman that interviewed me was the branch manager. And I believe he interviewed me with a a dip of skull in his mouth. (laughs) So I I thought, okay, this is really odd. I'm not sure what this is all about. And he said, uh, well, we don't have any sales positions, but I have a, they called them account managers. I have an account manager position. I said, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Thanks, but no thanks. And uh, James called me later that night, how'd it go? And I said, well, they didn't have sales. So I turned it down and he said, yeah, you don't understand. They're growing. They're opening all these offices. You really should consider it because I think you'll get into sales in a very short amount of time. And so I joked that I reluctantly took this position with the future in mind. And sure enough, you know, six months later, I was in sales. A year later, I was in management. A year after that, I was running one of the largest labor-ready offices in the, you know, I think top 20 in the country and really cut my teeth in the day labor. And uh I had uh, somebody that was not in the day labor ask me one time, they managed uh, the district for a, a kind of more attempt to hire type business and asked me one time, hey, do you ever think about leaving labor ready? I said, every morning at 4.30. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she called me and connected me with the president of that company at the time. And I uh, went to work for them and they sold to another roll up like a month after I hired and I thought, you know what, this is really not what I'm looking for to have somebody else control my destiny. And so I got into my own business in 98 and running my own thing ever since. That, that's amazing. And uh, so you started Next Staff in 98? But we actually started, the first company was Human Resource. Okay. And we built that up. That was a, a standard branch operated model. And uh, we built that up through a number of locations and actually sold that in 2003. And uh, when we sold it, it, it was a good deal for us. And the couple of investors we had at the time, but not enough to go off and retire at 30 something years old. And uh, so we thought, well, I don't really know much else outside of staffing right now. So what if we franchise the concept? And so we talked to the gentleman that had purchased the Kansas City market. And he said, sure, as long as you don't do it in my territory. So that's what 
kind of drove us into the franchise model was taking the four years of hard lessons that we learned going out on our own, doing everything wrong, recreating the wheel. And we thought we could save people so much time and money if we could package this up into a nice little program and franchise it. So that's what we did when we rolled it out in 04. And I saw that you've been, and I don't know if this was human resource or next step, but the Inc. 500 five different times. Yes. And was that mostly with next staff or human resources and next staff? What's the background there? It was a combination, but mainly under the next staff brand. Awesome. I think maybe under human resource, I think we may have done it once. Got it. But yeah, just hit 2022 this year as well for the Inc. 5000. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And, and what is the size and revenue of kind of where you guys are at in terms of uh, company size for next staff at the moment? Company size right now, we're trending toward 80 million for 2022. Awesome. And explain a little bit. So it sounds like you figured out the model with human resource, decided to go out and franchise it, build a franchise model with Next Staff. Tell me a little bit about kind of what that experience has been like, some of the lessons you've learned along the way. So, you know, going from the branch model to the franchise model, probably the biggest shift that we had to do. Well, one in the branch model, you're there in the office every day and what's in your head can be translated downstream pretty easily because you're you're there within your 10, 12 people every single day. With the franchise model, it needs to be more replicatable. You need to be able to, you know, I think I read a book sometime that said, if you can't drop somebody off in the middle of nowhere with your ops manual and your training stuff and have them succeed, then you really don't have a good proven franchise system. And so it took a lot of effort getting what was in our heads down on paper into a training format, into something that, you know, somebody could replicate 2,000 miles away without us being there every single day or without them calling us every five minutes. That was the biggest shift. The second biggest shift was going from a paid group of individuals working for you to basically a volunteer army that are all self-employed. There's a big difference between saying, hey, here's what I need you to do. I need you to make 100 calls this week and I need you to go on five appointments. And if you don't do that, we're going to have to talk about replacing you with somebody else. That's a lot different than working with a franchise owner. It's a more encouragement of this is what we strongly recommend. But the franchise owner can say, piss off. I'm going to do nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So you're like, oh, man, how do we get these franchise owners to do what we know works, but not as employees, their owners as well. And so that's been a big shift is how to convince people to do things when you can't, you start to understand how lazy you were as a leader or an owner when your your main source of inspiration and motivation was you know threatening to terminate somebody or threatening to <laughs> replace them or cut their pay, yeah. cut their bonus, whatever, if they don't do what you wanted to do. Having to move over to kind of the volunteer army. More of a carrot model. <laughs> oh, you, you definitely have to grow in terms of your leadership capabilities and your persuasive skills with that crew. And what are some of the benefits from your perspective of shifting to the franchise model? You know, I think probably the biggest one for us is seeing the growth that somebody comes in from outside the industry, knows nothing about staffing, knows nothing about owning a business and watching their progression and the satisfaction they get from, you know, staking their claim in their territory. This is mine, doing their grand opening, being an owner and seeing people succeed beyond their wildest expectations. And honestly, sometimes for us, we get folks that come in here and you're thinking, okay, we, we're going to have to work with this individual a lot. They don't really you know, hit the core strengths of what we need, but I think there's a lot of potential there. 
And to see those people just blow it out of the water versus the person that comes in the door and you think, oh, this, this gal's going to do awesome. She's going to be our number one franchise owner, no doubt. And to see them struggle. So really to see people grow from nine to five employee mentality into owner mentality, into self-employed and seeing them produce numbers that are just mind-boggling sometimes. That's got to be really incredible to watch. And I know one of the things that you and I talked about previously is the the success rate that people have with Next Staff. And I wonder if you could touch on what the success rate is for people that actually go out and buy the franchise model. And then also maybe discuss a little bit about who you typically see it coming in and deciding, hey, I want to open up a, a Next Staff franchise. And what does that look like for them? Yeah. So for us, you know, the success level, I guess it depends on how you define it. Some of the questions we get when somebody's interested in the franchises, you know, tell me about the people that have failed. And fortunately in our system, we don't really have a lot of those that we point to and success at my level of what I think your success could be or should be is different from what other people's level is. Yeah. So that, like I talked about that volunteer army, for example, we have an office that does very well for what they're trying to do. And as much as I want them to do more and I see more in their territory, they're very happy doing what they're doing. They run a very nice boutique, solid office, solid temp to perm, do great direct hire fees. I look at them and I think, God, you could be 10 times bigger if you <laughs> yeah. wanted to be. Yeah. But, you know, they have young kids and they want to spend time with them. They want to do that. So sometimes I have to rethrottle my definition of success to success is what they say it is. And so for us, we really, you know, in the last, we took a break from franchising from about 2009 when the Great Recession hit up through about 2017, we had purchased a PEO and a payroll company. We did that for a number of years, but uh, we really just started launching the franchise again in 17. And since then, I can't think of one that has like closed their business outright, said, no, it's not working. I could close my business. We've had a couple that got in, decided this really wasn't what they wanted to do and sold their business to another franchise owner or sold to a third party. We had one that retired. But um, I can't think of one that said, you know what, I've tried your system. I've tried it. I did what you said to do. And it's just not working. I have to close my business. For us, fortunately, we haven't seen that. Yeah, that's amazing. And one thing that I've also noticed is that your franchises go across different verticals, which when I think of the franchise model and staffing, typically I think of it's we light industrial or a specific vertical and kind of stays focused on that. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like to open up the franchise model with different verticals and some of the challenges or opportunities you've seen with that? Yeah. So we started originally with, uh, you know, it was just a franchise model and you could do whatever your background led you to focus on. And so early on, we had administrative offices, we had light industrial offices, we had IT offices, and that seemed to work pretty well. Where it didn't work well was when we tried to force fit somebody into something or somebody tried to get into an area that they didn't have any experience, that's where people would struggle for a little while. But the way we operate now is you essentially get to decide, do I want to own a commercial, vertical, healthcare, or IT? And you get to select one of those. You can purchase all three if you want, but what we tend to see is people get into their vertical and they expand in that vertical, meaning they expand to another territory within that vertical. We have a couple of owners not very many. I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head. We have one, two, three, well, now I'm sitting there, three, four, four that I can think of. So really, and they own quite a few multi-unit locations. So we have four that do 
They go across the different verticals. But they tend to have a segment that does that. They don't, like we typically preach, they don't typically have a a recruiter that recruits nurses and forklift drivers. They don't do that. They typically have a vertical. They start in commercial. They get that built up. They start doing well. And they decide, hey, you know what? There's a good healthcare market here. I want to get into healthcare. And they bring on a healthcare recruiter, somebody that focuses on healthcare. And so even though it's in the same office, they run independently of each other. That makes complete sense. I think we see the same thing when I talk to a lot of owners. It's like if you're not segmenting enough, the the conversations alone are different from the <laughs> from yeah. uh, each of the verticals. With that, so you've talked about the different success that some of your franchise owners have had. What are some of the top traits that you are looking for when you're hiring, or I guess you're not really hiring, they're coming in and purchasing a franchise. And I think about, and then what are the differences that you've seen from that versus when you are hiring a branch manager versus somebody who's coming in to buy a franchise? Is that a significant difference in what you look for from the individual? I imagine there's some key things that might make it a little bit nuanced for you guys. The profiles are very similar. So with a branch manager and a franchise owner, you're typically looking for somebody that has the high drive, that has the high social skills, has a high sense of urgency. And the area that you sometimes wander on is kind of the rule follower segment of that. Uh, The thinker personality, typically those will be lower. But what we see is if it goes too low, like in my instance, my example, where my rule following is very, very low, they tend to be your mavericks. And so that's one of the reasons I became an entrepreneur is because I realized I would be a very terrible employee. Uh, (laughs) Funny story about this. This tells you the kind of personality that sometimes we we want people like me, right? You want somebody that's driven. You want somebody that's go, go, go. Somebody that can sell. Somebody that's a good people person. Great sense of urgency. But you want somebody that can follow the rules a little better. In my uh, second position in the staffing industry, I like to tell the story about who we try not to hire. I came in, started working with them, and I didn't like the layout of the office because when you walked in, you basically had two chairs and there was a wall. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is really stupid. So I think I'd been there maybe two weeks and I came in over the weekend and I brought my saws on. I cut the wall in half and, uh, <laughs> you know, I cut the wall in half and put a little counter on the top. And I remember the vice president came in, you know, a couple of weeks later and walked in and was like, what happened to the wall? And I said, oh, I cut it. I cut it off. <laughs> he said, you can't just cut the wall down. You can't do that. I was like, well, I did. And then you can do that now. I mean, he, it actually blew his mind that somebody would actually do that. And in hindsight, I think about if I had one of my employees come in and just start cutting walls in half. <laughs> like, what the hell are you thinking? But, so you have to balance that equation, right? You don't want somebody coming in and cutting your walls off, but you want somebody with that kind of drive and initiative. So it's very similar. The branch manager profile and the franchise owner profile very similar. B2B sales is kind of what we look for as a critical skill set or background, but really drive, energy, the achiever, you know, somebody that's, and we get them a lot, right? They come in when they're coming through training and the ones that want to know about the records, who holds the fastest record for this, who holds this, how fast. So it's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they want to know about competition and uh, probably our top three right now that battle constantly every single week on our scorecard. Those three are always the same. They're always wanting to know where this person's at, who's doing this, who's doing that. Very competitive. And it's not in a bad way. Uh, we actually have a contest going right now between all three of them as a fun, you know, the loser buys the happy hour kind of contest, but they love it. They just they thrive on that. And they want to know what's the next one? What's the next contest? What's the next goal? 
those kind of folks do very, very well. And then at the kind of, I guess, franchise owner model, where you said actually in terms of owning the entire franchise, what type of tools or strategies are you helping them? I imagine there's a lot of training that goes into keeping them up to speed with what's going on. But what type of things are you putting in place to make sure that they're successful? And do you have a model for how you roll things out with them? Yeah. So the onboarding for this is quite extensive. It typically takes about 90 days. When somebody signs on with a franchise, we use a platform called FranConnect. That's you know, kind of a big dog in the franchising industry. And it, it's an all-encompassing sales tool, CRM, onboarding, learning management system, project manager, everything. So when they come on board, they enroll, get enrolled in essentially our project manager. And it lays out on a Gantt chart based on when they say they want to open. If they say, I want to open in 60 days or 90 days or 120 days, and it will adjust the Gantt chart accordingly. And it starts them from step one, filing your articles of organization or your articles of incorporation. Step two, get your EIN. Step three, register with that, you know, on and on and on, all the way down to grand opening. In between there, we have all kinds of LMS courses that go from recruiting to sales, to operations, to management, to finance. They come in for a week worth of classroom training, typically about a week before their office opens. Then once their office opens, we have our director of franchise development come out and spend a week with them. And then they have supplemental training that goes on after that. And then we follow it up with every single week we have on a rotation training every Wednesday that either covers finance, operations, management, back office, or sometimes we'll do an owner's only forum where it's just kind of a owner's only, no staff, no internal staff from the support side, except from James and myself. And this is where they can talk about, they can talk about their finances. They can talk about Hey, I think I'm going to have to fire my branch manager or, Hey, I want to, I want to change my compensation plan. What are you guys doing? A very cool, open peer to peer forum that they can talk about anything they want. So, um, yeah, the training's extensive. It's probably a hundred hours of online, 40 hours of classroom, and then constant week after week after week to where, you know, it's like a baton, very long baton to where, you know, we don't take the training wheels off until they tell us, okay. I'm good. I'll call you when I need you. That sounds really incredible when I think of being an entrepreneur myself and also having run marketing for multiple startups. One of the main reasons I've seen companies fail is not always coming back to not knowing what to do, it's knowing when to do what they should do. And I feel like having kind of a guided process of here's exactly what you need to do, when you need to do it, and when it's important. So I frequently see entrepreneurs jump the gun on spending too much money on marketing or too much money on logo development, things that maybe don't make sense at the stage they're at. And it sounds like you've kind of got the framework as for the franchise owner to just ensure that, hey, this is going to go smoothly. You don't need to worry about these components of it. You just need to get it done. The very last day of training, we tell them, or I mean, the very last day of the discovery day, Mm. they come in and they decide, yes, I want to go. No, I don't. The moment they say, I'm on board, let's go that usually the next conversation we have with them is exactly what you said, which is, okay, we have done this many, many, many yeah. times, not only in the franchise side, but in personal you know, offices. Trust us when I tell you, it will all get taken care of in the order that it's supposed to be taken care of. And the most common thing, and we tell people this story, we say, because you get all excited, the first thing that we get all the time is you sign a franchise agreement, you send your check, you're all excited, you want to get business cards. I say, oh, great. Yeah. yeah. What's your address? Oh, what's your phone number? Oh, yeah, I guess I need to get. So trust us. 
you got to put certain <laughs> things in order. I know you want to get your business cards, but yeah. you yeah. got to have your address and your phone number first. So those will come to you in the order that, you know, and fill that out for everything else, training wise and everything else. They So they want to come to training tomorrow. Well, you're not going to open your office for 90 days. You will forget 95 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. if yeah. you come to training next week. So trust us, that will happen at the very end so that you can finish on Friday, open on Monday, and hopefully retain more and get busy working it. So we have to tell them that, look, we don't make a dollar unless you make 10. So trust us when we tell you that this is You're all- doing it. It's, it's in their best interest. You're, you need them to be successful. So We are not going to steer you wrong. In no way by us steering you wrong will that help us. Absolutely. That, that's great. So shifting gears a little bit off the franchise model, but and just more generally staffing, what are some of the major trends that you're seeing, whether it be on the different verticals, new technology, just any kind of major trends that you're seeing in staffing right now? So, well, one in terms of the franchise side is the increase in healthcare inquiries. Yeah. Obviously, you know, with COVID, post-pandemic, the level of inquiries on the healthcare has gone up sizably. I'd say five years ago, we were 5% healthcare. Today, we're probably 50% healthcare because once COVID hit and everybody saw the demand for nursing, everybody is kind of running to that. And then some of the multi-unit owners, that's where they're really focused on is. So I have one based out of Des Moines, one based out of Denver, one based out of Nashville, and one based out of Sonoma. And all of those are doing multi-unit locations on a development plan, all in healthcare. So unless we get some commercial folks that want to do that same, I see us trending to where I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now, we're 75% healthcare, 25% commercial. And do you see, I mean, I know that, I don't know if there's a New York Times recently, I saw an article about how travel nursing is hitting some uh, slump, but I think it might've been in pay rates. And I'm just curious what you're seeing in terms of the market and demand for the travel nurses or ongoing healthcare services as a whole from a staffing perspective. So we don't get into the travel nursing. That's an area that we kind of stayed away from. But um, what we have seen is the supply and demand is starting to level off. So, you know, even six months ago, but certainly a year ago, two years ago, our offices, our owners could walk into a healthcare facility with contract in hand and say, hey, yeah. I can buy people. Are you interested? And they'd say, absolutely. When can you get us people? I went to a trade show about 18 months ago in Phoenix with an office. And uh, it was the Arizona Healthcare Association, I think. And I have never been to a trade show where people actively came up to your booth, handing you cards saying, can you please call us? Can you please call us? <laughs> That's amazing. I told Art, the branch manager down there, I said, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. It was crazy the number of people that uh, sought us out at that thing. So, but now I'm starting to see it level off and the ability to go in there and just command whatever you want to command has dropped quite a bit. And now it's getting back to a little bit more of the norm, which is, okay, let me see your agreement. What are your rates? Yeah. Okay. Well, your rates might be, and maybe a little pushback on rates. So that's getting back to the little more traditional things that we're used to seeing. And in terms of longer term for the staffing industry, are there any, you know, when you look out three to five years, I mean, I know there's the gig economy at play and all of the kind of different paths that people are going down in, in terms of technology. Any things that stick out for you or kind of changes that you think uh, staffing agency owners should be aware of? You know, for us, where we see it going, and, and we get this question a lot, you know, 
So somebody will call me and they'll say, well, what do you think about, you know, is AI going to replace staffing agencies <laughs> or platforms going to replace staffing agencies? What about the gig economy? What about Uber jobs or Google jobs or yep. any of these things? You know, are you guys eventually going to go away? And same thing with remote work. Oh, man, you know, I, I, what happens if everything goes remote? Are people going to be willing to use staffing agencies? And our theory has been if you stay in the right verticals and the right segments, there are certain areas that are just not going to go away. And it's no different than, and COVID is a great example. If you look at the businesses that were deemed essential or ones that weren't affected as much, you can't manufacture a widget remotely, right? Yeah. You, need to, go, you yeah. need to go to the building. You, need people. you can't do food production on a food production assembly line from your house. You can't do that. It has to be local. You can't be a CNA from your house, you have to be in the long-term care facility. So as long as you're in those type of areas, I think you're safe. Where it could get a little tricky is if you are, if you're doing you know, all administrative work, all clerical work. And as you've seen over the last handful of years where all the verticals are growing, but the clerical administrative has been kind of flat. It hasn't been keeping up. And I can see that, whether it's through offshoring or AI, becoming a little bit of an issue. As it relates to the platforms, you know, I think we, we heard that question back in the late 90s, you know, oh man, monsters. Gonna yeah. be and then we became, you know, the staffing industry became the probably the, the best customer of monster. Same way with, <laughs> yeah. with ZipRecruiter is yeah. fine. ZipRecruiter can give you a hundred resumes done. Okay. Who's going to go through them? Who's going to pick out the one out of the hundred? So I love that ZipRecruiter's thing is the needle out of the haystack. No, ZipRecruiter is giving you the haystack. <laughs> I've never thought about that. That is 100% true. I mean, they, they, get, they give you the haystack and the effort to get to that one is significant. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, they talk about AI and they talk about technology and matching up with stuff. The savvy HR people and people that have been in the industry know it's no different than SEO or Google search, right? I mean, we get resumes in our office the same way. If they're applying for customer service, the words customer service appear in their resume 27 times. If they're applying for account management, the same resume, customer service changes to account management and it's listed 27 times. And that's what's going to match up to your job, you know, that you say, I'm looking for customer service rep with this number of years experience. Well, that resume populates up there because that, you know, it's it, the bots are searching through there and they see that, oh, this person looks like they're really qualified. They mentioned customer service 27 times. Well, maybe they're just really good at resume writing and they understand how technology works. And yeah. is that really the most qualified person? No, you're getting a hundred resumes that come to you. You still have to figure out how do you get quality out of that? And we have not seen anybody that can pull that off through AI completely. That's still tough. And for us, the good thing about our industry too, is people are way overconfident in their ability to select winners from losers. And I don't know that the American ego can say that they can let that reside to technology. They still want to talk to them and meet them and give their unstructured interview, even though it's worthless and it's very <laughs> and study after study after study says that is a very terrible way to select a quality people. And yet everybody does. It. Everybody so, does. It. Yeah. So for us, we kind of shake our heads and laugh and say, you know, that's kind of good for us because the moment they say, you know what, I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to let Watson determine who my next hire is going to be. I just don't know. Good, gonna, good luck. Well, I don't think they're going to allow it. So. Yeah. 
And uh, you just touched on something there, but so are you, and I, I love that you talked about the unstructured interviews. Are you guys, do you with your team as well have structured behavioral interviews that you roll out that everybody goes through and have a standard kind of next step scoring system to allow for a higher predictability in hiring? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's our whole foundation. As I mentioned, during the Great Recession, rather than put more staffing locations into a declining market, we actually went on the offensive and we did an acquisition and acquired a payroll and a PEO company. And we ran that for you know about eight years to where our model for the, the handful of franchise owners that we had at the time was more of a workforce strategy. We can do temp to PEO. And that was a great model at the time, especially with the Affordable Care Act. And everybody's uncertainty around that. You had a lot of companies looking to, you know, just do their entire payroll. Hey, you guys do our temps. And then once they go full-time, we'll use you as the PEO. It was a great model. The only challenge with that model was I didn't like it. James didn't like it because you look at it from the outside very naively at first. And we thought, you know, we do temporary staffing. We do payroll. We do benefits at card. We do, you know, this is PEO. It's essentially the same thing, but somebody else's payroll, how different can it be? And the analogy we use is staffing industry complexities about bicycle, PEO is more like a motorcycle. They both have two wheels and handlebars, but they are so different in operation <laughs> and complexity. And uh, after operating that PEO for a number of years, the day we got the call from, uh, I can't remember, it was a broker or somebody and said, hey, I'm, I'm representing a large national brand, you know, we're looking for acquisitions. <laughs> yes, please. So <laughs> We sold that back in 2016. It's now part of paychecks. And so uh, we were glad to get rid of that. But what that did was it made us get back to our basics and uh, look and see, okay, if we're not going to be this workforce strategy model, you know, who are we? What's our USP? Why yeah. us? Why next F? And it started with a fundamental question, which is, what do the buyers actually want? And I don't know if you've seen that survey that SIA does, but uh, they do it where they pull the staffing buyers about you know their top three priorities when selecting a staffing firm. Yep. And all clustered down in this pile are you know diversity and speed and service, risk and workforce strategy. It's all clustered. But way up as the outlier is worker quality. That's not the surprising part of the survey. The surprising part is when SIA then goes to its staffing member database websites, yeah. looks to see what the staffing agencies are marketing. 80% of them are marketing this bundled stuff that people really don't care about. And only 18% are marketing worker quality. And that's so that's amazing. I didn't realize that there was that. That's a great insight. Huge disparity, right? Yeah. 80% of the buyers say, hey, we don't care about anything else but worker quality. And 80% of staffing agencies are like, hey, look what we can do. Oh, what? Hey. Worker quality? Yeah, whatever. We'll get you the person in there the fastest. And we're like, we don't actually, we just want the best quality. And you're like, well, yeah. we'll get them there the fastest. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so what was interesting was, so when we read that, we thought, wow, here's a great chance to be different, a great chance to stand out. You know, I wonder what some of the staffing agencies are doing. And so we, you know, staffing agency, quality people, staffing agency, quality workers, staffing, you know, we did our own research. And what we found when we did find an agency that talked about quality, it was always subjective. We have better quality people because our people are better. What, what does that mean? <laughs> I, I don't understand what that means. You know, so there's no quantitative data behind it. And so we went on this quest and it took us about a year. And we found every white paper, case study, anything you could find that had been published related to worker quality. And we packaged it all up. 
and we put it out there and said, you know what, there's a lot of tools out here that people aren't using that are two, three, four times more predictive on quality hires. I wonder why people aren't doing it. And what we found out was, you know, most of the people that get into staffing or get into HR, they kind of fall into it. Or, you know, you're talking to an HR director, they didn't go to school to be an HR director. They they yeah. were an admin or they were in customer service. They were the front desk person that, you know, now is all of a sudden handling the hire. And they're doing interviews like they were interviewed. They're yeah. screening resumes. Yeah, they're yeah. putting them in this pile of yes, this pile of no, doing that, doing that, bringing them in and asking, you know, five different applicants, five different questions, and then trying to select which one wins. And they can't figure out why they're not getting quality. <laughs> so what we do is we go in and we talk to them about some of the other alternatives to that. And based on our discussion with them and our discovery process, we put together a customized X factor that could include a number of different things. It could be as simple as doing a structured interview and just tempt to hire. You know, just tempt to hire, you know, just tempt to hire produces twice the results of just a standard resume, unstructured interview. Just trying somebody for 90 days is twice as likely to predict the quality hire. So even if they just did that, but you start adding a structured interview, maybe a work sample test or a personality profile that we talked about earlier, your quality scores and predictability go up dramatically. That, that is uh, great. It makes complete sense. And I've seen that with our own company with the, uh, that you, no matter how many questions you ask or how well you ask questions, seeing how somebody works is all ultimately what it comes to one of the, the most predictive ways of making sure you got the right person. Do you guys with that, are you looking at outcomes for your customers then? Are you tracking back to, are you giving quality scores based off of all these measures, but do you actually go backwards then and, and get quality of higher data? And then that's how far? That, that would be great. That okay. would require some great participation from our clients. Yeah, yeah, I, wish yeah, we, yeah. I wish we were better at that. We probably need somebody that coordinated it, but no, we don't go the full length. Ours is measured more by client satisfaction and testimonials that come out. But to so come back, you're, but you're standardizing the process, giving it a measurable, making it objective, helping the client get to a spot where that the yeah. likelihood of them having higher quality is more than we've got great people. <laughs> so. and, and, and to answer, so your original question on that was one of the components of that X factor is a tool that, depending on how they answered, will provide a structured interview follow-up question for us and the client. So let's say they go through and one of the questions is, David says that it's okay to steal from your employer and you marked yes. Follow-up question is, so David, when you said it was okay to steal from your employer occasionally, can you expand on that further? You know, and but it gives you the, the question to ask for each answer. That's cool. Provided. Very so that cool. If I'm interviewing five people, I'm asking the same question to five different people instead of five different questions to five different people. Got it. Got it. That makes complete sense. That's really cool that you guys have implemented that. With that, I was going to jump over to the personal section of the interview. First question I've got for you is, what advice do you wish you were given before entering the staffing industry? Don't do it. (laughs) 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 Oh, let's see. um, You know, we talked about training a lot and uh, I found it interesting. So when I finally got into sales at Labor Ready, it was was literally, okay, hey, we're going to go ahead and move you into sales, period. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, okay, so, I mean, what What does that mean? What do I do? I mean, what's your plan? It was just like, just go get clients. I had to figure it 
out. Now, you know, subsequently, you know, years later, they they did quite a, an extensive overhaul on their training and flew people out to Tacoma, et cetera. So I think they've long learned that lesson. But I think it maybe before I got in the industry was, you know, just to get on some kind of learning track because there's a lot of mom and pops out there that aren't very sophisticated. And you were talking about some of the tools, not only with training, but, you know, the technology stack that uh, we do right now, which includes, you know, the stuff that you guys do, that is going to be critical for people to compete in the long term. And I think that would be another bit of advice, which would be, if you think you're going to come in and sift resumes and work out of Excel and, you know, salesforce.com and just sit around, you're going to get outdated real quick and you're going to get passed by real quick. This industry is converting very quickly into a lot of technology wrapping into the business. And I think I just saw an article. Oh, I don't know if I cut it out. I I read it on the plane. I thought I may have cut it out right here. But I think the average small mom and pop has between six and nine technologies that they use where the enterprise is more like 15, 16. Yep. And so that's one of the things that we try and do on the franchise side as well is get small independent operators, even though their big USP is, hey, I'm local. How many times service person turned over in the last two years. I own this place. I'm not going anywhere. And the best part about me is I'm tapping into a larger resource and enterprise system that's going to give me all the tools and technology that the biggest players in the country have. And uh, I think you better, if you want to be in this industry, you better be good at navigating some of the technology because all the bigger players are doing it. I've seen that change in the last five to 10 years. I mean, it's wild to see just going to the SIA conferences, who's exhibiting and the suppliers there. It's uh, changed and a lot lot more tech entering the industry very rapidly. Yeah. Well, and the other the other term you've seen, you know, one of your earlier questions was, you know, some of the things that have changed on healthcare. But the other thing, the big shift that has also occurred, as you've seen, is, you know, back in the day, if you had the clients, the people would come. Now it's the other way around. Yeah. To, you have to be really good at getting the people in and, you know, then if you have the people, you can get the clients because that's what they want. They want the quality people. And so you have to be good at coming up with different ways, different methods, using different technologies, obviously referrals, you know, that's, you know, yeah. the number one, obviously the number one leading predictor of whether somebody sticks around or not is through referrals. So yeah. that's all this kind of stuff that we're tapping into and, and trying to get better at. Yeah, that's great. And in, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Ooh. <laughs> belief, have, gratitude. It all starts with gratitude. And how have you implemented that? Or what, what changes have you put into your life to make sure that you are focused on being on gratitude? Just being cognizant of it. There for a while, I would do three a day. Um, I got this from one of my mentors, you know, the little gratitude, one, two, three, and you're supposed yeah. to have on the cup, but I would keep it in an Excel spreadsheet. And the reason why I did that was the goal was to come up with three gratitudes a day and never duplicate. You know, you don't wow. want to come up day and go, <laughs> family this. health, my business, you know, family health, my business. That's really easy to do. When you put it in Excel, you know, when you start typing, you start typing family, you're going to know, oh, I've already used that before. And so that's what I started doing. And man, when you start getting hundreds deep, you, know, you have to really sit there and go, okay, well, I've used family, I've used health, I've used business, I've used grateful for my pets and my dog and the weather. And you really have to start thinking, what am I grateful for? And when your mind can shift into that focus of, 
hey, I, I got to start looking for things to be grateful for. It kind of changes your perspective, changes your personality. And uh, yeah, it's been a big improvement overall. That's uh, such a small nuance on, I've focused on the gratitude thing personally at different points in my career, at different points in my life. And one of the things I've even had our team doing that consistently on our standups at one point, but one of the things that we always got stuck on was it was the same thing over and over and over because it gets yeah. easy. And it's like, oh, well, it's easy to say the same thing. So that's impressive to think about trying to make it something different and really expanding your thought about what you're oh, it, grateful it, for. That's really cool. Yeah. When you start getting into, you know, you're on number 1000 and you're trying to create something, you you have to get <laughs> you have to get real creative. And that's kind of the point of it, right? It makes you think because you get in a hurry, you're doing your thing. It's really easy just to come in there and put, you know, family health business, move on. Yeah. That yeah. So I love that. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Uh, the number one I've given by far has been the E-Myth. That was kind of the propellant that uh, when we first started, that resonated with us. It made a lot of sense. Michael Gerber, you know, going from that technician on, it just, it was so good. Now where we're at today, the latest one has been uh, Gina Whitman's Traction, Rocket, yep. Pool, anything to do with you know, EOS, the Entrepreneur Operating System. We're giving away traction now to all our franchise owners. We just rolled out. We used to do, so it was EMeth, then four disciplines of execution. I used to give that one out a lot. And now it's traction and the, um, the EOS system. And we're, we rolled that out in January of this year. And we're going to roll it out to our franchise owners at the franchise conference in September because it's just, just hits on all cylinders. It, it really... I like the way it breaks everything down. It puts everything in 90-day rocks. And so that's going to be the one we give away here for the foreseeable future. That's fantastic. uh, We've also implemented Traction EOS and are huge proponents of it. So it's really cool to hear. Last question I've got for you and a lot of closing comments is just what failure or apparent failure has uh, set you up for success later on in your career? Oh, let's see. What failure... It's not that I'm trying to think of one. It's that there's been so many. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to narrow it down because, um, you know, I probably, we had an investor in 2010 when we bought the PEO and the payroll company yeah. on an investor. And this gentleman, very successful commodities trader. But what we learned was that was his life. He was used to being able to get in, get out, get in, get out buy, sell, buy, low, sell, high, in, out, in, out. And so when he put his money in with us, I mean, it was literally, okay, here's the money. Let's buy the PEO. Okay, when do I start getting paid? We're like, oh, well, I mean, this is a growing bit. We, we're yeah, we're growing. Yeah. Right? This isn't in, a in seven years. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not a dividend type process. And he just couldn't grasp that, that his money was going to be tied up for that. I, I don't know where we got sideways on what our long-term vision was. But anyway, this gentleman caused me a lot of anguish and a lot of heartache. And man, we would get together and just clash. Yeah. It wasn't until the very, very end that I started looking at him in a different light. And again, back to the gratitude, I started looking at him more as a mirror than an opponent. And the the anger that I saw when I looked at him was some of the issues that I needed to resolve. You know, I thought he was a bully. I thought he was this. I thought it was this. And then, you know, in self-reflection, I looked back and I thought, you know what? That's kind of the way I am. And it really changed my perspective on how I was leading people, how I was talking to people. And the moment, it was literally the moment I switched my mentality to, you know what? I appreciate this guy for being in my life. 
for pointing these things out to me so that I can get better. Boom. We sold the business. He went his way. We went our way. And, <laughs> you know, and I just saw him literally, I saw him down the street about a month ago at lunch and he came over and said, hello, shook his hand, whatever. But man, during that period, I was, whew, that was a tough, that was a tough learning curve there. So I don't know if this is necessarily a failure, but it's definitely a major struggle in my life, major heartache, major uh, stress that really pivoted to the positive for the long term. I love your uh, focus on perception and mindset because I feel like that makes all the difference. So that's uh, that's really a wonderful story about yeah. how to turn something, a challenge into an opportunity. Yeah. Um, if you change your question from why is he or she doing this to me to what am I here to learn? Your perspective on life will change overnight. This is great advice. Great advice. With that, Carrie, any closing comments that you have for our audience today? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, it's a great time to be in the staffing industry. I think we're going to see more good than bad. I don't think the industry is going backwards anytime soon. I see more opportunity for us. And, you know, what we tell our potential franchise owners, the harder the administrations make it to be an employer, the better it is for us. And I certainly don't see that going easier anytime soon. If we had the chance to do it, it would have happened at the last administration. And I think it's just going to get more and more complex, which means more and more people are going to want to outsource it. So it's a good time to be in there. Stay focused, keep growing, stay on top of your technology and keep riding it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Great insights today. Thanks for being on the show. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time.